Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SupChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup of news and a selection of full stories from Caixin, plus conversations with reporters and editors from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast in North Carolina. And I'm Ada Shen in Beijing. First, our weekly review of business stories from Caixin and beyond. This week started with a set of macroeconomic data that might indicate China's strong growth in the first quarter is losing steam. Both the official and Caixin PMI numbers, the Purchasing Managers Index reading, fell to six-month and seven-month lows, respectively, in April after touching a five-year high in March, and the Caixin Service Sector Survey numbers fell to an 11-month low. So what happened? Some analysts believe that government measures to cool the property market and a tightening of monetary policy to rein in debt and reduce financial leverage could undermine the first quarter's strong recovery. For those in the driver's seat trying to steer China's economic performance, it's always a narrow road to steer between growth and reform. The strong growth of the past several months has offered a rare window to implement some difficult but important policies. Many residents in Shanghai looked to the skies on Friday afternoon to catch sight of the maiden flight of China's first homegrown passenger jet, the Cormac 919. This blue, white, and green color jet symbolizes China's ambition to compete in commercial aircraft construction. China has every reason to want to build a strong aviation industry. Not only is China the world's largest manufacturer, but it's also set to overtake the U.S. to claim the largest number of air travelers by 2024. Manufacturing a plane is not easy. The maiden journey of this 158-seat aircraft was delayed for three years. The next question is, which airlines will fly the Cormac 919? The manufacturer says that 90% of contracts so far are with domestic buyers. On the internet scene, the three dominant forces we call BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, all have some interesting updates this week. Baidu, China's search giant, redefined its mission to highlight artificial intelligence. The company's core search business has slowed in the mobile age, and many of its newer businesses are losing money in an environment of ferocious competition. Alibaba, meanwhile, says it wants to play the role of unifier, cutting into the fierce bike-sharing game by announcing that customers can use its payment app, Alipay, to unlock almost all bikes. A very smart move. 
And Tencent has had a bit of a setback in Russia. Its enormously popular social media platform, WeChat or Weixin, was blocked by Russian regulators who say internet service providers must first register with related government bodies. Does that sound familiar? And for those who watch China's financial sector closely, the big news this week was an article published by Taishin questioning the capital flows of the aggressive insurer Anbang. The article uncovered the fact that there are more than 100 companies among Anbang's layers of shareholders, all linked to Anbang's mysterious chairman Wu Xiaohui. Anbang became a familiar name in the West for its recent shopping spree. In an 18-month period beginning October 2014, it spent about 16 billion dollars in buying foreign assets. Anbang issued a statement saying Taishin's article wasn't true and threatened to sue, and Taishin fought back with a statement standing by its story. Tech giant Apple reported that its first quarter sales in China had dropped again by 14 percent, and CEO Tim Cook blamed a strong U.S. dollar as well as increased competition from local brands. But he also sounded an optimistic note. We talked to Taishin editor Doug Young about this. Doug, Apple's China numbers are down, but is there a way to see this glass as half full? Fill us in here. The story is that Apple has been having a hard time throughout the world, but that seems to be getting a little bit better these days. But they're still having a hard time in China. In the last quarterly results, which they reported early this week, all of their markets had turned to positive growth except for China, and China was still down about 14 percent. China has been falling for the last, at least the last four quarters. Tim Cook, the CEO, pointed out that this quarter and the previous quarter were a little better than the last two quarters. I think their、uh, sales fell down by more than thirty percent. These last two quarters, they were down about half that, about fourteen, fifteen percent. So you could say that's an improvement. But you know, Apple's having a hard time in China right now.、Uh, them and another company called Xiaomi. They're having to battle the local companies Huawei and then this other company called Oppo and another company called Vivo. But the bottom line seems to be Apple's maybe lost its coolness or its cutting edge position. They charge a big premium here in China. What's、well, taking the shine off Apple in the China market when they're faring so well in other developing markets? I think there's a variety of factors, and, and the analysts I've talked to do cite a, a number of different things.、Uh, CEO Tim Cook, he said specifically a third of the decline was due just to the strong U.S. dollar. China's currency, the yuan, has been under pressure for most of this year and, and probably a bit of last year.、So、that's probably hurting sales. Another factor that he said was hurting sales is less Chinese traveling to Hong Kong. A lot of mainland Chinese like to go to Hong Kong to go shopping, and and iPhones is one of their favorite things to buy. So if there's just less Chinese people going to Hong Kong, that's going to hurt. But the competition factor, I think that's an area that's hard to quantify. But there's a a lot of competition in China, but we do have to note that that's at the real low end of the market for these cheapo one two thousand yuan phones and U.S. dollars. That'd be like two three hundred dollars. Apple is definitely not competing for that segment of the market, but at the same time, you do have Huawei, which is starting to move up the value chain. 
they have started making phones for four or five thousand yuan. Apple's still sell for I think north of six, seven thousand. So there's a little bit of a gap, but a lot of people are saying, hey, these Huawei phones do everything that the iPhone can. Uh, why should I be paying that extra two, three thousand renminbi for a, a phone when Huawei is good? And and Huawei is also developing a reputation as being sort of a solid, high quality phone instead of cheap, made in China type thing. Thanks, Doug. Let's turn on to Tanner Brown, an editor at Caixin Global, for an update on the massive sandstorm that has enveloped parts of China, including Beijing, for days now, making it the worst sandstorm in the capital for two years. Tanner, I saw some frankly terrifying pictures of North China. What's going on now? Northern China and Beijing as well just had what was probably its worst sandstorm in a couple years. And this comes after years of a decrease in intensity and frequency of these type of storms that originate usually in Inner Mongolia, Xinjiang area, and cause a bit of chaos. Visibility was really poor in some areas, a matter of meters in some areas. Dozens of flights were grounded at Beijing International, and not unheard of for China, but pollution was quite bad, worse than it often is, quite a feat. Has anyone been injured so far as a result of the sandstorms? Beijing Daily reported that a taxi was hit by a falling tree, northern part of the Third Ring Road, and the driver was injured. And on Friday, there was a report that a person in Haidian in Beijing's west was killed when an object was blown into him. Wow. Okay, so lethal sandstorms. Stay indoors, folks. Stay safe. And now, for our selection of important stories from Caixin Global for the week, we'll look at another IPO by an affiliate of the massively popular hot pot chain Heidi Lau, and whether it may point to a coming public offering by Heidi Lau itself. We'll hear how China's migrant workers are opting to stay closer to home and family as wage differentials flatten out. We'll meet an amateur Hutong historian who's working to preserve the lore of Beijing's storied back alleys. And finally, we'll tell you about China's efforts to bring to justice 22 fugitive officials it says are hiding abroad. From Business and Tech, May 3rd, 2017. Top hot pot chain tests waters with sister companies listing. By Coco Feng. Beijing. A second sister company of top hot pot chain Sichuan Heidi Lao Catering Company has gone public, heating the waters in a thriving Chinese restaurant sector as Heidi Lao itself reportedly is eyeing an initial public offering, IPO, that could be the largest ever for a local homegrown business. Yu Dingyu Beijing Food Limited, a restaurant operator that serves Mao Tsai, a stew-like dish originating from Sichuan province, listed two weeks ago on China's new third board and over-the-counter OTC, market open only to wealthy investors. Controlled by two of Heidi Lao's four co-founders, Yu Dingyu lost money in 2014 and 2015 before returning to profitability in the first eight months of last year. It has relied on the far larger and highly popular Heidi Lao for funds to help finance its operations. Last year, Ehi International Holdings Limited, a former Heidi Lao unit that continues to supply the company, was also separately listed in Hong Kong. The pair of listings has heated up talks surrounding Heidi Lau's own IPO plans, which have bubbled in and out of the headlines for the last six years. In 2011, Zhang Yong, Heidi Lau's co-founder and president, was quoted as saying an IPO would benefit his company. In late 2015, the company was reported to be considering a $300 million Hong Kong IPO, according to Bloomberg, which said the listing could come as early as 2016. 
Heidi Lau has yet to reveal any IPO timeline and told Caixin it has no immediate plans for such a listing. Heidi Lau has been cautious about going public and is testing the waters by getting two sister companies traded on the stock exchange markets, said Neil Wong, Greater China President of Consultancy, Frost & Sullivan, which acted for EHI in its 2016 Hong Kong IPO. In China's catering industry, only a handful of companies have been publicly listed. Wang said that Chinese restaurants faced difficulties standardizing operations, making it hard for them to expand to national and even international level and achieve the scale needed to attract investors. But Heidi Lao has had an easier time due to its hot pot format, which revolves around raw ingredients boiled in a pot at customers' tables and is relatively easy to standardize. That has allowed Heidi Lao to open nearly 200 branches in China, the United States, Singapore, and South Korea. One of Hong Kong's largest IPAs to date for a Chinese restaurant operator came in 2007 when the China unit of Japan's Ajisen Ramen raised about 1.5 billion Hong Kong dollars, $193 million, in a public listing. The China unit of Yum Brands Inc., operator of the KFC and Pizza Hut chains, was also spun off for a separate listing in New York last year. People, May 4th, 2017. China's Migrant Workers Staying Close to Home by Huang Shulin and Pan Che. China's workforce is staying closer to home, according to an official report that indicates the number of rural migrants working locally has risen by 26% over the past seven years. As regional wage gaps narrow, migrant workers are giving more consideration to their children's education and to health care for elderly relatives when choosing where to work. For the younger generation of migrant workers, the key problem is their children's education, said a human resources expert from South China Normal University. Migrant workers are typically divided into short and long distance, with long distance migrants usually working in a city closer to home, often where they have their household registration or huko. Long-distance migrants find jobs further afield. The number of short-distance migrants increased by 3.4%, or by 3.7 million, in 2016 to 112 million from 2015, while the number of long-distance migrants rose only 0.3%, down from a 0.4% increase in 2015 to stand at 169 million. This is according to the latest annual survey of migrant workers published by the National Bureau of Statistics, NBS, last week. The survey, which sampled about 8,900 villages in rural areas across the country, also found that the number of rural laborers working in China's cities rose by 1.5 percent, or 4.2 million year-on-year in 2016, to reach 282 million people, accounting for about 36 percent of the total number of people in employment in China, which was about 776 million by the end of 2016. More than 88% of the increase came from short-distance migrants, the survey said. The growth rate in the number of migrant workers picked up in 2016 for the first time in the past seven years. From 2010 to 2015, the growth rate declined significantly from 5.5% in 2010 to only 1.3% in 2015, although the absolute number continued to rise from 242 million to 277 million over the same period. The narrowing revenue gap between short- and long-distance migrants might offer some explanation for the rapid growth in the number of short-distance migrants in recent years. The survey found that although migrants working near their home areas earned about 600 yuan, or 87 U.S. dollars, less than their long-distance counterparts, their income grew at a faster pace. 
Average income for short-distance migrants stood at 2,985 yuan, or 432 U.S. dollars, per month, up by 7.3% from 2015. This is one percentage point higher than the wage growth rate of long-distance migrants, who earned an average of 3,572 yuan per month. The eastern area, spanning three municipalities, Beijing, Shanghai, and Tianjin, and seven provinces, including Hebei, Jiangsu, Fujian, and Guangdong, still absorbed most of the migrant workforce. In 2016, 160 million migrant workers were employed in the area, accounting for about 56% of the total migrant workforce. However, the eastern area is becoming less appealing to migrant workers, with data showing that the number working in that area dropped by 0.3%, or half a million, from 2015. By contrast, migrant workers choosing to work in central and western areas increased by a combined 7.9% in 2016, accounting for about 40% of the entire migrant workforce. In recent years, wage increases for migrants working in eastern China slowed due to downward economic pressure, according to NBS data. From 2011 to 2016, the annual growth rate of monthly income for migrants was down from 21% to 7.4% in the eastern area. Rural migrant workers are not necessarily from rural areas, but are workers from a rural household registration designation who are employed in an urban workforce. Many grew up in or even born in cities, according to China Labor Bulletin, a Hong Kong-based worker rights group. The hukou system, which was originally introduced by China in 1958 in order to control migration, started to relax its grip in the 1980s as China forged ahead with economic reform. Since then, millions of rural workers have flooded into cities and towns, looking for jobs in various labor-intensive industries such as manufacturing, construction, and services. China's spectacular economic growth over the past three decades owes much to migrant workers, but they still face many institutional barriers that prevent them and their children from having equal access to many public services in cities, such as health care and education. From People, April 28, 2017. Living History. Beijing Back Alley Memories Revived by Folklore Scholar By Purnima Wirasakara Beijing Deep in the heart of one of Beijing's old neighborhoods, Li Jinrong, a chain-smoking septuagenarian leading a group of travelers, stands apart from the armies of Chinese pedicab rickshaw drivers and western guides who often haunt these historic back alleys. Li, 74, calls himself a self-taught folklore scholar and often conducts walking or cycling tours of Beijing's centuries-old courtyard homes, or Sihiyuan. They're found in a maze of narrow streets, or Hutong, that are chock-full of cheap dumpling shops, stalls selling barbecued lamb skewers, gossipy grandmothers, and communal bathrooms. Li said he started researching the history of old homes in the Chinese capital nearly 15 years ago after retiring from his day job as an electrician and elevator repairman. This was the time that the municipal government was raising old neighborhoods, some dating back more than 400 years to the Ming Dynasty, to make room for skyscrapers and shopping malls in a headlong rush to win and then prepare for the 2008 Olympics. Back then, people were leaving courtyard houses without heating or plumbing faster than the rats infesting the shared toilets, Lee said. This was long before tourists on electric tricycles started choking the alleyways, and it became trendy to live in spruced-up courtyard homes. Today, these traditional neighborhoods are home to a mix of elderly residents, foreigners on a quest for character, wealthy nostalgic hipsters, and rural migrants who sleep in the backs of their 10-foot noodle shops. 
there are contradictory figures on how many old courtyard homes are still standing today. In the early 1980s, the Beijing Institute of Traditional Architecture counted over 6,000 courtyard homes, and nearly half of them were preserved in their entirety, said Tan Liefei, deputy director of Beijing's local Chronicles Compilation Committee. But by the end of 2012, only 923 of them remained intact. More Hutung neighborhoods were destroyed between 1990 and 2005 than the total number raised during the 40 years from 1949 to 1989, according to a collection of essays titled Beijing Sihuyanzhi, published last year by Tan's team. The first courtyard homes appeared soon after Kublai Khan swept across China and moved the capital of the vast Mongol Empire to present-day Beijing nearly 800 years ago. They are quadrangle structures, with the main elevated living quarters for elders in the north, flanked by two connected side wings for children opening into an inner courtyard and an elaborately carved screen wall to ward off evil spirits and divide the area from the servants' quarters in the outer yard. The government survey counted only homes where these signature architectural characteristics were intact. But according to the Beijing Cultural Heritage Protection Center, a non-governmental organization, there were nearly 1,000 hutongs in the city, with nearly 30,000 old homes in various states of disrepair by the end of 2014. Although the demolition frenzy has died down in recent years, the old customs, folk traditions, and even the language heard in the alleyways of old Beijing were slowly disappearing as rich outsiders buy up these homes near the city center, Lee said. And that is what prompted him to pick up his bicycle and start giving tours to university students and anyone else who would listen to his stories. His business card says, I use humorous puns from the old Beijing dialect to tell visitors about the folk history of the capital. Do you know why the daughters were always given rooms in the East Wing? Lee asks. It was part of Chinese wordplay. Daughters had to leave home after marriage, and the word for East, Dong, was echoed by the word for being in motion, or Dong Liu. Beijing's old architecture mirrored the rigid social hierarchy in Confucian societies. The number of steps leading up to a house, the size and pattern on the guard stones on either side of the entrance, the number of poles to hang lanterns above the main gate, and even the art on the roof tiles all signified the wealth and status of an individual, according to Li. A good example of this is one of the residences of old Beijing warlord Zhang Xueliang. Zhang ruled over northeast China from 1928 and is best known for kidnapping Guomindang leader Jiang Kai-shek in 1936 and forcing him to form a wartime alliance with the Chinese communists against invading Japanese forces. Zhang's home, with its wide entrance to allow a horse-drawn carriage to pass through, big guard stones carved with lions, and clockwise swastikas, a Buddhist symbol for good fortune, on the awnings of the roof, all hinted at his power. Today, Zhang's descendants continue to live there, Li said. Most of the information I have collected comes from first-hand accounts of people who have lived in these old neighborhoods, the amateur historian said. His narrow 15-square-meter home in the Bada Hutong area, a few kilometers south of Tiananmen Square and famous as the Ming and Qing Dynasty's red light district, is crammed with history books and hand-copied notes on the architectural details of old buildings. Yellowing clips from old newspapers calling him an exceptional Hutong history specialist and columns he's written for papers on old Beijing folk customs spill out of a folder on a corner table. I used to write for several home appliance publications earlier, including the popular Chengdu Dianzibao, he said. Now I focus on culture. Lee also spends hours poring over the Beijing Municipal Archives, which hold more than 1.7 million pieces of information, including research papers, news clippings, government records, film, and photos. 
There are over 3,600 old files related to the history of Hutong from the period before the People's Republic of China was founded in 1949, he said. And one of my favorite pastimes is to look at old residence records to see who lived where. But modern tools such as the internet are beyond the reach of this self-proclaimed Luddite who refuses to carry a cell phone. He often chides young visitors, saying, Your noses are buried in phones and eyes glued to computers, but you are slow on your feet and even slower in your heads. Lee said he knows most of the alleyways in Beijing like the back of his hand, and many of the old residents have become his friends. At number 11 Nanjixiang Hutong, one of the back alley neighborhoods in the Dongsi area, an elderly woman invites him to look at engravings on a wall in her home and an old painting on a thick wooden pillar supporting her roof. I first thought the marks were painted on the wall, the woman, Lei Yujun, said. But recently my son said, no, the symbols are engraved on the wall, but I don't know what they mean. Lee is unable to shed any light on the markings, but he explains that the now blackened paint used for the mythical creature with the head of a lion and a dragon feet on her pillar came from lacquer trees in Yunnan province. Once there was a shop in Zhushikou, in central Beijing, that used to make these traditional paints, he said. It is these rare nuggets of information that has made this self-taught historian a popular figure in the back alleys of the city. Even pedicab rickshaw drivers who bring tourists come to learn from me, and I have assisted two professors from Shantou University research Beijing's folk history, he said. And I have been invited to talk about old Beijing architecture at several primary and middle schools. Costly facelift. But now the gentrification of the Hutong areas is threatening to push out elderly residents like Li. In 2005, the government announced plans to stop tearing down old neighborhoods and instead started investing about 500 million yuan, about $60 million at the time, each year to renovate dilapidated courtyard homes. About 340,000 families were relocated after the overall urban plan of Beijing 2005 to 2020 was announced, according to government data. But once renovation was complete, many of the original residents couldn't afford to move back. A 230-square-meter suhuyuan near downtown Beijing had an asking price of about 19 million yuan even before renovation in 2015, and it went up to about 25 million yuan after its facelift, data from Beijing Shunyixing Real Estate Brokers Limited showed. The proximity of some of these neighborhoods to top schools in the capital has pushed up prices even further. And this rapid gentrification means that old ways of life, like mahjong clubs, are being replaced by Western-style bars and art studios. In the neighborhoods that haven't been renovated, old residents still pay a nominal rent of 4 yuan, 58 U.S. cents, to 5 yuan a month to the municipality, Lee said. Many of them have no ownership deeds or rent agreements, but their families have been living there since the 1950s and 1960s when the original owners were chased out and the Sihuyuan were carved up and given to party members and factory workers for communal living. Even historic buildings, including the one that housed the East Depot, the feared Ming Dynasty spy agency run by a powerful eunuch named Wei Zhongxian, has now been turned into a maze of cement shacks by these tenants. Lifting the Veil of History While Li is fond of taking his groups to the homes of old Beijingers, he also doesn't shy away from more controversial sites. One of the places he shows visitors is Number 6 Fuqiang Hutong, where former Communist Party chief Zhao Ziyang was said to have been under house arrest for 16 years. Zhao was one of the pioneers of China's three-decade economic miracle, pushing to open up the gold coasts of Guangdong, Fujian, and Zhejiang provinces for export manufacturing. 
He lived in this nondescript courtyard home until his death in 2005 at the age of 85, according to Lee. It can be easily missed by an untrained eye, and only the back wall with barbed wire and an abandoned watchtower remain as clues to its past. Just opposite the back wall of number six is the former home of Lao Shu, who many thought would be the first Chinese writer to win the Nobel Prize in literature, but instead met with a tragic end. He was known for works such as Rickshaw Boy and Tea House, a sprawling social commentary of one Chinese family from the late 19th century to the momentous year of 1949. But at the start of the Cultural Revolution in 1966, Lao was paraded through the streets of Beijing and beaten in public in front of the Temple of Confucius by the Red Guards. A day later, he committed suicide by drowning himself in Beijing's Taiping Lake, Li said, but three bodies were recovered, and no one could identify which one was his. The Chinese language is a word for the people like Li whose names don't make it into the history books, the Lao Bai Xing, or Old 100 Names, Li said. But we have witnessed history and have inherited our community's folk memory, and that memory must not disappear. People, April 28, 2017. China puts spotlight on 22 fugitive officials hiding abroad by Li Rongde. China has released detailed information on 22 former government officials and senior executives at state-owned companies wanted for alleged crimes now in hiding in foreign countries. The Office Overseeing International Operations to Hunt Down the Wanted Officials released a statement Thursday providing details on where each might be, why they are wanted, and details on their travel documents at the time when they left China. One of the wanted officials is Cheng Muyang, identified by the central government office as former president of a Hong Kong investment firm and former general manager of an advertising company in Beijing. He fled China in August 2000 when he was suspected of embezzlement. He is now believed to be living in Canada. Chung first fled to New Zealand with travel documents numbered H9009055 and H00707019000, according to the official statement, which does not identify the type of documents he used. Chung, 47, is the son of former party secretary of the northern province of Hebei, Chung Weigal. In 2003, the father was put under investigation for serious violation of party discipline, a euphemism for corruption but he died in 2010 without being charged. Ten of the 22 fugitives are now thought to be living in the United States, five in Canada, four in New Zealand, and one each in the UK, Australia, and the Federation of St. Kitts and Nevis in the Caribbean, according to the statement. The 22 are among 100 fugitive officials put on Interpol red alerts by China, according to a list released by the top anti-graft agency, the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection, CCDI. Forty of those 100 have returned voluntarily or been repatriated to China, official statistics show. The spotlight was put on the 22 to exert pressure on them in hope of driving them out of hiding, according to Liu Jianqiao, director of CCDI's International Cooperation Bureau, which leads international operations targeting fugitives. We need to exert more pressure on them as we're in a critical juncture in operations against them, Liu told state broadcaster China Central Television. The National Anti-Fugitive Office also appealed to Chinese living overseas and foreigners not to help the 22 hide. 
that's this week's show, and thanks for joining us. We hope you'll give us a listen every week and help spread the word. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina.com. I'd love to get your feedback. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SubChina and produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories by the staff of Caixin Global. Special thanks to Li Xin and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Yufei for the music. Be sure to check out the Cynical Podcast, the current affairs show I host with Jeremy Goldcorn. We are now in our eighth year and we have a terrific lineup of shows. And be sure to follow the news from China daily at SubChina through our free email newsletter, our smartphone app, and at the website, subchina.com. Take care.